Thank you for encouraging my heart so greatly in the time of worship we have together. It's always a, a rich treasure to me to, to be here for a chapel and just to enjoy the, the music and the ministry of music that uh, James brought to us so beautifully done in one of my very favorite hymns. Thank you so much. I want you to open your Bible, if you will, and kind of follow along with me in the 15th chapter of Luke. This is a famous chapter, I know. It's a, it's a famous story, the story of the prodigal son. But it's been captivating my heart and my mind in recent days, and I, I, I want to go into this chapter because I think it's, it opens to us an understanding of our God, the God we worship, that um, is not very often addressed. I want to talk to you about the joy of God. That might be a shock to some people to think of God as joyful. But remember, we are made in His image, and everything that is good in our lives is a reflection of Him. And uh, is there anything better than joy that must have come from God? God is not only love, He is sheer, pure joy. Scripture says that God has no joy in the death of the wicked. It says that several times in the book of Ezekiel. He finds his joy, however, in the recovery of lost sinners. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 9 and 10 says, For the Lord your God will rejoice over you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law. And if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, God will rejoice over you. How great is his joy? Listen to Isaiah 62, 5. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. That is, the, that is the greatest sheer joy in human life, to approach a wedding in the union of love. God selects that as an illustration of how joyful he is over us. The Bible says a lot about the joy of God, a lot more perhaps than we think. We learn that when we get to heaven, God's joy is going to literally engulf us in the reality of the fullness and the completion of our salvation. Because God rejoices over the salvation of sinners, that salvation then has a compelling interest in God's plan. God has designed to redeem sinners for his own sheer joy. If anything defines heaven, it is joy. God's joy over the recovery of lost sinners and our joy over being the recovered lost sinners. Jonathan Edwards once wrote, God infinitely values his own glory and finds his infinite joy in that glory. You might even say that God desires to be glorified 
for his own sheer joy. The joy of God. What an amazing thing to think about. To help us understand the joy of God over the recovery of lost sinners, look at 15 of Luke. That's what this chapter is about. It's about the attitude of God over the salvation of sinners. Beginning in the first couple of verses, the tax collectors and the sinners were coming nearer to our Lord and listening to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees and the scribes were the ones who were the architects of Judaistic Pharisaic legalism, a, an apostate form of Old Testament religion. They had come to the point where they wanted nothing to do with sinners of any kind. In fact, the rabbis said, and I quote, let not anyone associate with the wicked, no, not even to bring him near the law. There was no interest in evangelism at all. They were the self-righteous elite, too holy and too pure to be defiled or polluted by sinners. In fact, they looked at sinners as amharats, the groveling, grinding, unclean people. They wanted nothing to do with them. But the word was out about Jesus, and he was the opposite of the religious establishment. He spent his time with tax collectors who were at the top of the list of sinners because they were basically Jews who bought tax franchises from Rome and betrayed their people and extorted money from them for a pagan ruler. But our Lord hung around tax collectors and sinners. He even said that he had not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners to repentance. Maliciously, they spoke about our Lord, and the pinnacle of their assessment of him was that he was from hell. That was their conclusion, that he was satanic. He had to be satanic. Look at the people he hangs around with. He hangs around with the people that belong to Satan. Even when Jesus cast out demons, they said he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul, by the power of Satan. You, you might say that the religious establishment of Israel was anti-evangelism. They thought they knew God. They thought they represented God. The truth of the matter is they knew nothing at all about God. Certainly they didn't know that God finds his joy in the recovery of lost sinners. Verse 3 tells us he told them a parable. And that is he told the Pharisees and the scribes. This is the story. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Which of you wouldn't understand that? They would all understand that because sheep have monetary value. They would get that because they saw value in sheep. And the, the application of the fictional illustration is in verse 7. I tell you, 
that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In other words, he's saying to them, God finds no joy in you self-righteous people. He finds his joy in one sinner who repents over 99 self-righteous people who need no repentance. So we're introduced then in verse 7 to the joy of God. More joy in heaven. Whose joy is this? It's God's joy. Look at the next parable he gives, verse 8. Or what woman, if, he has, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, this would be a fortune, doesn't light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. And again, they would understand that. Obviously, the coin has value, immense value. Verse 10, it's applied. In the same way, I tell you, listen carefully to this, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is not the joy of the angels. It is the joy of one who is in the presence of the angels, and that one is God. I might be so bold as to suggest to you that there is a non-stop party going on in heaven. Non-stop. Because sinners are being saved all the time. The celebration never ends. And the leader of the celebration is God himself. He is the one in the presence of the holy angels who is rejoicing. If you, he says to the Pharisees and scribes, do not understand, if you do not understand that God finds his joy in the salvation of sinners, then you don't know God at all. How could you possibly affirm the celebration of the finding of a lost sheep and the celebration of the finding of a lost coin and not celebrate the recovery of a lost soul? And with that in mind, he comes to that very famous story in verse 11. It was Charles Dickens, Ralph Waldo Emerson, both and many others who said it's the greatest short story ever written. It's a Middle Eastern peasant village context, uh, unfamiliar to us. None of you have ever lived in a Middle Eastern peasant village. Its design of the story that we call the prodigal is to show the joy of God over the recovery of a lost sinner. Now, there's a little bit of background that I want to help you with. The Middle East, even to this very day, has a very intense shame-honor culture. It's really very important that you receive honor and that you do what gets you honor, and you avoid anything that brings shame. This is an immense issue, and our Lord knew it. So he makes up a story that is just loaded with shame. In fact, our Lord invents fictionally the worst sinner that those Jewish leaders could ever even imagine. This is the Lord's, the Lord's perfect imagination devising a sinner 
that would be the very worst imaginable sinner for those Jews. And then shows how God finds his joy in the forgiveness of that sinner. The whole story is just one long, shameful tale. Now remember, he's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. It is shameful, the story. It is shocking. It is outrageous. It is inconceivable. It is impossible. It makes no sense on any level. Everything about the story is absolutely shameful. A man had two sons, verse 11. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Well, that's a simple indication. What do you have here? Shameful request. Hey, buddy, get in line. You're the younger. Back up. You're out of rank. That's disrespectful. That's selfish. That's hateful. What's he saying? Inheritance comes when your father dies. This is a way of saying, wish you were dead. But since you're not dead, could you act like you're dead? You give me what's coming to me? Literally, the share of the goods, case usias, the property, the stuff. He didn't want his inheritance to manage it, to develop it and grow it, as um, we could imagine previous sons would have done to build up the family wealth. He wants nothing to do with his father. He wants nothing to do with his brother. He wants nothing to do with his family, nothing to do with the village. He wants freedom, he wants independence, he wants no accountability, he wants no restraint, he wants no father. There is no precedent in the Jewish world for such a request. It is outrageous, it is a violation of the foundation of the honor culture, honor your parents. Where does that come from? Exodus 20. You would expect, the Jews and the Pharisees would have expected the father to slap him across the face, whack, 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 or beat him publicly, or discipline him in some way. The father's job is to protect his honor. You can't let an outrageous, brash young man like this get away with such a request. But even more strangely, the father responds in verse 12, so he divided his wealth between them. Oh, now the shame has transferred from the son to the father. That is a shameful father. What, what father would do that? What self-respecting Jewish father would do that? That is an even greater outrage than what the son asked for. This is absurd. You have to wait till the father is dead. And of course, if there's two sons, the older gets two-thirds, the younger gets one-third. But this doesn't happen until the father is gone but this father willingly abandons his own honor and shamefully, in a ridiculous way, gives the estate to the kid, what's coming to him, literally aids and abets his unaccountability and freedom. Very dishonorable father. This father in our Lord's story just lost all respect in the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes. First of all, no boy like this hates his father. This is abnormal in an honor culture. No boy would seek the goods that his father would leave him when he's dead. No father would then give to him what he asked for. Oh, by the way, the older son plays no role here. He's not even in the picture. 
the son gets his money. Verse 13. Not many days later. If you have a third of an estate and it's given to you, and this is a significantly large estate, we can assume because of the largeness of the celebration later, if you have a huge estate, how in the world can you turn it into cash in a few days? You're talking about land, you're talking about animals, you're talking about crops, you're talking about whatever's stored in barns. How can you turn it into cash in a few days? But that's exactly what he did. I'll tell you how you turn it into cash in a few days. You sell cheap. You sell cheap. Maybe he sold it as a future, a cheap sale at a high discount. This is even more shameful. Wasteful. It was certainly worth more than he got for it in his fast sale. And then, further shame, as our Lord continues to devise this young man, he gathers everything together, all that he has is now in transportable cash, and he went on a journey with it into a distant country. That would be a Gentile country? And the Jews would say, oh, time for his funeral. He's as good as dead. And to make it worse, when he got into the distant country, he squandered his estate with loose living. And this is a fool. I told you, this is the most ridiculous sinner Jesus can invent. He literally squandered his entire estate. On what? Look at verse 30. He devoured his wealth with prostitutes. This is just beyond comprehension. That's why he's called the prodigal, because prodigal means wasteful. He scattered his entire future in just a little bit of time, threw his entire life away, loose living in a dissipated, debauched, inescapable life with harlots and prostitutes. That was all his doing. This is shame upon shame upon shame upon shame. The Jews can't even conceive of somebody like this to go into a Gentile country and, and throw your life away with Gentile prostitutes. But he had controlled all that. Then in verse 14, something happened that he didn't control. There was a famine occurred after he had spent everything. Can you imagine that? Spending an entire third of an estate, a massive estate, and it's gone. And now something he didn't do occurs. Beyond his control, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. What happens in a famine is people eat garbage, people eat sandal, people eat each other, people eat stray animals. This is life at the bottom. This is where he is, and you can just see the Pharisees and scribes saying, oh, yo, yo. How could he ever get into this kind of a situation? Way over the top. Just ridiculously shameful behavior. No one would ever do this. Well, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed swine. I can't add to the story because it isn't a true story, but I can kind of concoct in my mind that what's behind that is this guy probably couldn't get rid of him as a beggar, so he offered him a job and sent him into the fields to 
food pigs with no intention of ever paying him anyway. When it says in verse 15, he attached himself to one of the citizens. He literally attached himself, that kalao, to glue yourself. I think he just glued himself to some guy that had resources, and to get rid of him, the guy sent him out to feed pigs. By the way, Old Testament law forbid that. There's no, there's no reason to think he was paid because it says no one gave him anything in verse 16. He never was paid. The guy was getting rid of him. And there he is with the pigs, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods, carob pods, that the swine were eating. Now he's eating the stuff that pigs eat, or he's trying to eat the stuff that pigs eat? Carob pods? This is so ridiculous, this is so bizarre, so outrageous. This kind of shameful behavior is incomprehensible. And he's um, not able, by the way, to eat the carapods because humans couldn't digest them. He would have gladly filled his stomach with them, but they were inedible to him. No one was giving him anything. He is starving to death. Well, who is this guy? This is the sinner. Poor, hungry, hopeless, helpless, pitiful, fully to blame. The lesson is simple. Sin is rebellion against God, rebellion against God's law, rebellion against God's love. It is literally throwing away all of heaven's resources Sin is disdain for God's person, God's rule, God's authority, God's will. Sin is shunning all responsibility, all accountability. It is to deny God's place. It is to hate him. It is to wish him dead. It is to dishonor him. It is to take all of his loving gifts and common grace in life and squander them and go as far as you can get from God. It is to waste your life in self-indulgence. It is dissipation. It is unrestrained lust. It is shunning all God's goodness and all gospel opportunity. Sin is reckless evil. Sin is selfish indulgence, bringing destitution and death. The freedom of the will is a horrible bondage. Sin looks for fulfillment until it's so far away from God it can't find fulfillment. Sin leaves the sinner absolutely exhausted, empty, poor, hungry, hopeless. This is extreme. This is extreme. Clearly, our Lord, as I said, is giving us a picture of the most outrageous sinner he can invent. This is the ultimate sinner. He's bad. He's stupid. And he's lost. Verse 17 brings into picture a shameful repentance. When he came to his senses, always, by the way, the start of repentance is an accurate assessment of your condition. That's where repentance starts, with an accurate assessment of your condition. He came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. More than enough. That's an indication that his father was generous, that he was good, that he was compassionate. He paid more. He gave more than what was enough, which means he paid hired men who were the lowest uh, 
rung on the socioeconomic ladder. They were people who hung around the city or the town edges or in the center of the, of the town waiting for somebody to come and hire them. They were day laborers. He realized that his father was even generous with day laborers and paid them more than enough. He knows the kind of father he has. Decides to go home. I'll get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. This is going to be an embarrassing return. It's going to be hard going back and facing the father that he showed such disdain for. It's going to be tough to go back in the village. It's going to be tough to go back to work. And he knows the system. Here's the Judaistic system. You wasted your inheritance. The only way back into the family, only way back into honor is to restore it all. Restore it all. So he knows what he's looking at. He's looking in a legalistic system at years and years and years and years of hard labor to earn back at low wages everything he ever lost. He blew it in a brief amount of time. It's going to take him his entire life to be reconciled. And he even knows that his sin has, has reached heaven. He, he seeks no privileges. He has literally abandoned all claim on rights, privileges. That's all forfeited. He makes no excuses. He says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to throw myself on my father's mercy. I'm not going to demand anything, nothing at all. I just want to go back and be like a hired man. He, in verse 19, says in his soliloquy, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. Just be, give me a start. I'll work at the lowest level. I'll work like the hired men work, the barefoot people who have nothing. I'll work my whole life to make up. What, what a picture. Here is the sinner who has come to desperation, who has come to an accurate assessment of his own wretched condition. He wants reconciliation. He has no demands. He wants reconciliation. But like the Jews, he thought the path to reconciliation was bound up in his works. And he could earn his way back. And that's what he was willing to do. Hmm. For a moment, we have something honorable in the story of shame. The Pharisees would have been high-fiving each other. Yeah. He's going to work his way back the rest of his life. So he came to his father in verse 20. This is just this is just so ridiculous that they must have grabbed their heads and bent over when they heard him say this. He got up and came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and Kept on kissing him. Yoy. This is, a sh this is the most shameful thing yet. What kind of an idiot is this father? It's a long way back. It's a long way to that first kiss. It's a long way to that first embrace. It's a lifetime before reconciliation can take place. You've got to earn it all back. This is the most shameful thing yet. This is a shameful reconciliation. The father has just turned in any honor he might have had. He'd lost a lot when he gave the young man the money. If he had any honor left, it is gone here. 
He sees him a long way off. Why, why would he see him a long way off? Because he had been what? Looking. Looking. A long way off from what? A long way off from the village. He saw him, and he felt compassion, and ran. That's a verb used for running in a race. Normally, Middle Eastern gentlemen don't race. Do you know in the Middle East, the word for robe is machbut? You know what that means? That which gives me honor. Do you know why you see Arabs on television all the time, or if you've been over the Middle East, with robes that go to the ground? Because that is the symbol of their honor. You will never see a mini robe because, because it is shameful to show your legs if you are a nobleman. By the way, Middle Eastern noblemen don't run. They, they just do the moonwalk. They just glide slowly. They're not in a hurry. There's a certain noble pace. They don't jump. They don't run. They don't pull their robes up and sprint through town. But he does. He ran. What is this? This is, this is the Savior seeing the wretched sinner and before the wretched sinner can get to town and receive all the shame and scorn from the town, the father, who symbolizes the Savior, runs through the town, exposing his legs and bringing shame upon himself to embrace the son and protect him from the shame. This is wacky. The embrace symbolizes full reconciliation. Here's a pig stinking son. And he keeps on kissing him and kissing him, covering his head with kisses. What, what, he, what should that father have done? Should have beaten him? And he probably should have beaten him in the middle of the village so he would have maintained some of his own honor. And then... He should have assigned him the role of a hired person to work at the lowest level of wages and spend his whole life trying to earn back what he wasted. And you know why the Jews thought that's the right way to go? Because they had no concept of grace. None. In fact, it's what they hated most about Jesus. And the son says to his father in verse 21, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he stops there. He doesn't add the part, make me one of your hired servants. Why doesn't he say that? He said he was going to say that back in verse 19. Why doesn't he say it? Because that doesn't matter anymore. He's already been what? Reconciled. You have to know that the Pharisees and the scribes hated this kind of grace. They hated it. They were outraged. You eat with tax collectors and sinners. He receives forgiveness, 
it's lavishly demonstrated. The father said to his slave, quickly, bring out the best robe. What's the best robe? His best robe. His best robe, which was used for grand occasions, weddings, festivals. Put it on him. This is the robe of ultimate honor in the family. And then put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Here is reconciliation. Here is restoration. Here is forgiveness. And the young man hasn't done anything. He receives full restoration, pure grace. Who is this father? Clearly this father is God in Christ, as in the first two stories, coming down from heaven to the dust of our towns to run after lost sinners, to even take their shame. God initiates the search. He's the seeker. He finds the sinner before the sinner can find him. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. God's love for the penitent is lavish. It is pure grace. It is apart from any work. God finds his joy in the salvation of the sinner. He eagerly runs to embrace, to restore, to receive, and to bedeck the sinner in all the lavish blessings that he has. This is, this is God's effusive, gracious, eager love. God is not a reluctant Savior. Father says, go get the fattened calf. Verse 23. Kill it, let's eat, and celebrate. Now we come to a shameful rejoicing. Everything has an aspect of shame. This is are you kidding me? You're going to have a celebration over this wretched, no good prodigal? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to get him all dressed up and sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. And as far as the Pharisees and scribes are concerned, this is inconceivable. The robe literally covered him with the father's dignity. The ring gave him the father's authority. The shoes gave him the father's responsibility. Full sonship by sheer grace. And what is going on in the party is the same that went on in the party in the earlier two stories. Heaven is now rejoicing. Heaven is rejoicing. This is God's joy. God finds his joy in the recovery of of the worst sinner, the worst. And then the story closes with a shameful reaction. Verse 25. His older son was in the field. By the way, nobody bothered to tell him, which indicates that there wasn't a real strong relationship between this particular son and the father or his brother. He's just out in the field. The party has begun. Nobody bothered to tell this son, which tells you something about their relationship. And when he came out and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf 
because he has received him back safe and sound. Wow, the older brother appears. He is the Pharisees, okay? He's the Pharisees. He's the Sadducees. He is really ticked. He is violently outraged. And oh, by the way, he has no relationship with the father either. He hates the father, as we will see. He has stayed home. He has stayed home to, to have a sort of superficial participation in what the family has. He's dutiful. He's religious. He's moral. But in his heart, he's exceedingly sinful and totally estranged. So they say to him, your brother has come. Your father's killed the fattened calf, which would be kept for some great occasion like this. Verse 28 says, he became angry. He became angry. He pictures the Pharisees. They were angry at Jesus all the time for embracing sinners and was not willing to go in. His father came out and began pleading with him. Do you know how many times in the New Testament Jesus met with the Pharisees? Over and over and over and over and over to tell them the truth. That's what he's doing here. The answer in verse 29, again, the shameful reaction. But the older son answered and said to his father, look. <laughs> Is that what you say to your father? Like, look, buddy. There's certainly no dignity in that. Your brother has come home safe and sound in the, in the, uh, in the Greek. It's the Hebrew word shalom. There's peace. There's reconciliation. And his response when his father comes to appeal to him, look, look, speaks to him as if he's some kind of stranger, complete disdain and disrespect. And he says, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you've never given me a young goat, let alone a fattened calf, that I might celebrate with my friends. What have you ever done for me? This is a shameful reaction, but there's reality in it. This is going to be the final reaction of every legalist when he enters into the presence of God and divine judgment. You never did anything for me, and I was always hanging around. Hypocrites stick with hypocrites, but the father never put on a party for hypocrites. But when this son of yours, not my brother, but verse 30, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. This is, this is guilty. Shame beyond comprehension. You are a shameful father. You have embraced a shameful son. You have shamed yourself with your lavish love, forgiveness, and grace. And the father says, not we us, but technon, my child. You've always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. That's the problem with religion. You hang around, you hang around, you hang around, you have no relationship. Right? 
You hang around, you hang around the stuff, you have no relationship. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Here again is the joy of God over the recovery of a lost sinner. This is a strange ending, isn't it? Because what's the question in your mind? What happened to the older brother? It just stops. We had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Period. Oh, by the way, this isn't the ending. Say, how do you know that? Because in these types of essentially poetic stories, there were a series of strophes or verses. And traditionally and typically, so that they could memorize them, there were eight strophes. There's only seven here. One is missing. The final paragraph, the final strophe is missing. Missing. Final stanza missing. Now, I'd like to write a final stanza for you. Here's what I would do. Upon hearing this, the older brother, being outraged at his father, but more outraged at his own sin, fell down and repented. That's not there. But I do know the ending because the Pharisees wrote it. It would go like this. Upon hearing this, the older brother, being outraged at his father, picked up a piece of wood and beat his father to death in front of everyone. Okay, where'd you come up with that? It would be a few months after this when they would kill the Savior with wood. They wrote the final paragraph. And they would congratulate themselves that this was a necessary act to kill the Father, if you will, to save their spiritual honor. In the language of the parable, the scene might look like this. The son began striking the father with crushing, killing blows, saying, you are evil, you are evil. Someone needs to end your shameful behavior. But they did the cross. They killed him. final ironic twist is that the father who should have beaten the wicked son is beaten by the wicked son in the greatest act of evil ever but in that act of evil he purchased our redemption didn't he father we thank you for your word we thank you for the clarity and consistency of its truth. We thank you for 
the gospel. Thank you for the salvation that has been granted to us by grace alone. For that, we offer up not only the praise of our lips, but the devotion of our lives. And Lord, our prayers, if there are no older brothers here trying to earn their way to heaven, but only broken sinners whom you have embraced and kissed and whose recovery you celebrate with all the hosts of heaven. Father, use us, use all of us to bring joy to heaven by making our lives available for the rescuing of lost souls. This is our prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. As we close at this time, I was asked if I would read the benediction in Hebrews chapter 13. You're probably familiar with it, verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Amen.